this International Criminal Court and look at Article 7 very carefully, all right? We've gone over this before, but let me just read you, again, the relevant parts. And this is something that should be very well familiar to you in, in looking at a civil code and trying to apply it as if you were in the continent of Europe. Um, remember, what were the three prongs? You can tell me the three, three aspects of using a civil court system in prosecution. Anybody? Judges, we discussed it. And material. Mental, material, and contextual. Uh, common law systems like the United States, we have certainly the material and mental element, although we don't use that terminology. We, we do use the Roman law expression mens rea, guilty mind. That you had knowledge and you intended. That's the mental element. Material element is the particular prohibitions in, for the particular acts. Did those acts occur? And finally, the contextual element brings it under the purview of the ICC because it's, it's not just any old crime, but a super crime. And in the case of crimes against humanity, um, that you'll see on the internet, if I could figure out how to make this projector work, I would project it up to you, but I'm having trouble making that work. I'm sorry. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, we have crimes against humanity requires a widespread or systematic attack directed against any civilian population with knowledge of the attacks. So a key fact in the moot court will be whether or not these were was an attack on the civilian population or merely harmed the civilian population. We know civilians died. But what, does that mean it's an attack on the civilian population or it's just, it was just an attack on soldiers and the residue from the battlefield operations affected human lives in the future. So that will be a big battle of the lawyers on the contextual <coughs> element. And then which crime against humanity? Is it extermination? I don't think they were trying to exterminate large numbers of people, just soldiers, unless you're going to argue that chemical weapons against soldiers constitute extermination. Um, I don't think it's persecution because it, unless, unless you're going to, the prosecution is going to allege that minorities were targeted. If minorities are targeted, then you obviously would say that uh, a racial or ethnic minority or a tribal group was selected out uh, because you know it happened in a certain part of the country where they were the major, they were the most of the people that lived there. But the defense would say, well, that was just a coincidence that they happened to be in an area where one group predominated, but it wasn't meant to persecute them as such. Now, the one that the, the crime against humanity that comes closest will be uh, Article 7, Paragraph 1K, other humane acts of a similar character intentionally causing great suffering or serious injury to body or to mental or physical health. Clearly, we know that um, there was great suffering, serious injury to body and to mental or physical health. But according to the law, were these inhumane acts of a similar character intentionally causing. So the mental element will be crucial for this other humane acts provision. Uh, intentionally causing. Uh, intention, remember we talked about how civil law systems have, can anyone remember from a week ago or from the reading? There were sort of four categories of intention, only one of which is just pure deliberate intention. One was recklessness and negligence. 
and recklessness and negligence are not certainly uh, typical of all legal systems. There's present in some and not in others. Some legal systems would say, no, that's a different crime. That's reckless endangerment or negligent endangerment, let's say. Uh, but in this particular case, since there's only one crime against humanity of other inhumane acts, uh, we don't have separate categories like we would have in the United States common law. So the legal question for the lawyers would be, is either recklessness or negligence a grounds for intentionally causing great suffering or serious injury? Now, all of you in the class, again, this is new to you, but I want you to get familiar with this. So please do read uh, Article 7 of the International Criminal Court Statute. Um, Attack and extermination are defined in Article 7, Paragraph 2. Attack is directed against any civilian population, means a course of conduct involving multiple commission of acts referred against any civilian population. So one thing you might ask yourself, and this is why the law, why the law is difficult to apply in concrete situations, is an attack on soldiers that harms the civilian population the same thing as an attack on the civilian population? The defense would say it's different. The prosecution would, be, would say it's the same. Um, and was there a, a state policy to commit such acts, such an attack? Well, you could say there was a state policy to attack the soldiers. It wasn't a state of policy to harm the civilians. It was an unfortunate consequence. You might even say it's criminal, but it's not an international crime against humanity. It's some other crime, maybe, but we're not prosecuting other crimes here. Or the prosecution would say, no, that's the same thing. And finally, if you're going to go for extermination, includes the intentional inflictions of conditions of life. So you would argue that uh, if you use chemical weapons, that creates a condition of life where people are going to die in the long run, even though they weren't actually combatants on the battlefield initially when these weapons were used. He said, among these conditions of life are deprivation of access to food and medicine calculated to bring about the destruction of part of a population. Well, those two factors are not present unless the prosecution is going to claim that the head of state also, in order to cover up the uh, use of chemical weapons denied medicine because that would be an admission that they used these chemical weapons and the head of state may not want to admit that they used chemical weapons at all since they tend to be illegal to begin with. Okay, so I don't know if you consider this fun, difficult, easy, but this is the way the law is and by having this experience you'll find out what it's all about and you'll see at least have a better understanding of how the law works in practice by having done it and for some of you, you might think um, that this is something I might want to do as a career or at least go to law school. And you might go to law school and then drop out because it's not what you find interesting. One of my best students showed up in my office Friday saying, I'm dropping out. I, can't, I don't find it as interesting as political science. I don't know. That, was, that shocked me. I didn't know that people found political science so interesting. But anyway, I encouraged him to become a war correspondent. So now he's heading off around the world to he wants to be a journalist, and these days that's just about the only way to get into journalism because there are hardly any newspapers on the domestic front. But anyway, so this will give you an understanding of the law and how it operates and its fundamental roles in society and how the law expands beyond its initial intentions. 
And having stated that, then let's turn to the reading in chapter two on comparative legal traditions because we have a discussion that continues the discussion in chapter one on how the law has expanded beyond the initial codes that were established uh, in Rome, first again the Republic, and then in the Empire, rewritten by Justinian, with the civilian, civil code being the most important. And throughout most of history, civil law systems, and when I say civil law systems, I mean as opposed to common law systems, uh, the civil code was the heart of the civil law system. But it's not the only part of the system. The civil code concerned three parts in the Roman version of it under Justinian. Uh, it was uh, particularly the law of obligations, or what we might call contracts, but other obligations. The law of uh, property and the law of contracts. And the tradition in civil law countries was until the 20th century, when you had the emergence of the welfare state and a larger bureaucracy, larger in both cases than in the United States um, has ever developed, you know, some change so that countries that happen to have the civil law system now generally have more than just the civil code as the heart of the legal system. But for the evolution of this civil law system over two centuries, I'm sorry, two millennia, forgive me, two, two millennia, um, since the Roman Republic, the code uh, uh, was the civil code was, was all that re really was important. Um, there wasn't a big government, so criminal code wasn't a huge factor. Criminal punishment was done arbitrarily outside formal organizational structures that send vigilantes to beat you up. They didn't want to be regulated. They didn't want to give fair trials. That emerged slowly and steadily, so the cr criminal code developed more elaborately over time. And then when they developed formal courts and over you know, at least a millennium later, the emergence of civil and criminal pro procedure became the other parts of major codes of code-based systems. And by way of an aside, if you were to go to law school in the United States, in your first year when you would take core courses, the core courses typically would include um, property, contracts, torts, uh, which didn't exist in the original Roman code, and uh, criminal procedure and maybe civil procedure, but certainly criminal procedure, that is the procedure used by courts to take, that could, in cases that could end up as trials. Note that uh, torts in civil law systems, which is, uh, comes from the word tort in French, T-O-R-T, -T, is a first year law school class in common law systems uh, these are torts of negligence, torts of nuisance, uh, wrongful death. These are civil lawsuits in a common law system, that is. These are cases of disputes between private parties where the government is not typically the actor, although you could sue the government for a tort. And um, you would collect, at least the common law, damages, that is money, for the harm that you suffered from an accident in a car wreck or uh, malpractice by a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, tort of nuisance is, it would have to be a pretty big nuisance. You, you, there might be criminal nu nuisance where you, the police will come in and get you to stop playing your stereo at 5 a.m. in the middle of a dorm. If you didn't stop it, they'd probably just throw you out of the dorm first. Um, 
But you could technically sue the person if you caused you brain damage or you proved that you got lower grades because you couldn't sleep or what have you. Uh, the t torts, you know, did not exist in Roman times. You know, you did, just didn't exist. So this is an area in civil law systems that judges have actually either made law or have been encouraged to interpret more broadly because there was no code in the civil code on dealing with harms caused by one person against another, one company against another party, or even the government against another party. So now we're going to move to chapter two, which is, um, well, let me just say a couple more words about the, the code from chapter one, which is that you know, we have three basic divisions between the civil code traditions and many, many hybrids around the world. But since the Nordic countries in Scandinavia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, developed codes of their own not based on Roman law, that's said to be one smaller branch because relatively few countries and very few countries around the world have adopted the Nordic approach used in Denmark and so forth. And the two main branches are the French and the German that we talked about last time with the big difference is that the French is written very simply and the German is much more elaborate seeks to make broad generalizations, foresees as many circumstances as possible in the code, and was written uh, at the end of the 19th century, almost 100 years later, and therefore industrialization had proceeded to a much greater extent. So the law was being written for modern industrial life as opposed to an agricultural society that mostly existed at the time of Napoleon when the French code was written in the early 19th century. Um, second, you have dispersion of these models in the former colonies, but in most of the colonies of Asia and Africa, and to some extent the Caribbean, you have local customs which receive these models from the colonizing power, and the law gets merged between local customs and local customary law with the national law. So uh, Spanish and French colonies, uh, received the code of Spain and Portugal uh, and France, for example, uh, at the time of colonization, if, the, if they became independent at a much later period of time, the French code might have been amended by statute, although generally German codes amended much more than French. And Germany didn't have so many colonies. What few colonies they had were taken away by the Versailles Treaty. But the point is that there is this intermeshing of the code from the colonizing power with local customs. And then you have a lot of convergence and mutual influence going around the world in two directions. First, you have, in the case of Europe, the European Union uh, creating a suprastructure supra with the European Court of Justice being the highest court of the now 27 member states of the European Union, and its law is the supreme law for all matters that the European law governs. And then this in turn, because of certain similarities that are required in the areas of law that the European Union governs, and they don't govern every, every, everything, but they do govern things like customs, free trade, uh, to some extent human rights, uh, then the domestic laws of countries will have to change to be consistent with the laws of the European Union Court of Justice. And there's European Union legislation 
that has been enacted and promulgated, usually approved by the council, which is the heads of states of the 27 countries, uh, often developed through consultation with the European Parliament and the European Commission, which is the bureaucracy of the secretariat that is on the ground in the European Union countries. So this combination of legislation and adjudication by European Union institutions has led to a much more similarity uh, among the civil law countries of the continent and with the common law country, the United Kingdom, which would also include Wales and Northern Ireland, but not Scotland, because Scotland has Roman law of a type, uh, because Scotland never took on the common law, even though it was colonized by England around the time of Queen Elizabeth I. And the other factor that should be stated is that uh, there is enormous variation among the civil law countries. Obviously, the Nordic countries, to some extent, the socialist countries up to the end of communism developed unique codes of their own dealing with socialism, not all of which have gotten, been gotten rid of. Uh, and then the uh, Nordic countries are different. German and French are different. So in some ways, you can say, Although Roman law provides the heart of the two most important models of civil law countries, France and Germany, uh, and Roman law you know, has been uh, many things and many times in history, and it's really the code of Justinian uh, in the sixth century written in Constantinople in the Eastern Roman Empire that forms what we know of Roman law. But even despite these core similarities, and the focus on the civil code is the heart of civil law, thus the name civil law systems, even though they all have a criminal code and a criminal procedure and civil procedure, we see uh, enormous variation. You can almost say that within the civil law systems of the world, which includes basically most countries that are not former British colonies, uh, you will see more variation among these countries than you would perhaps see between, let's say, England and France and the United Kingdom or the United States, two countries which has the common law. And why would that be? Perhaps because the common law countries, England and France, tend to be more democratic, more developed, because the English post-colonies had the most institutionalization of democracy. So not to say there's not enormous poverty in countries like Nigeria, Pakistan, parts of India, um, Ghana, and, and other English colonies in, in French West Africa, in, in English, former English colonies in, in West Africa, Kenya, Tanzania are also British colonies, ex-British colonies that you know have some uh, high degree of poverty. And so it does not to say if you're a former English colony with common law, you're more developed, but. Certainly when we say, when we think of common law countries of, as the developed countries of England and the United States, we're talking about countries that have social structures, industrial societies, modern bureaucracies, and courts which are highly developed, well-resourced, very procedure-oriented, just as the civil law systems of the continent of Europe would have because they have more developed economies and more elaborate bureaucracies. Now, it really doesn't matter, you know, Obviously, comparing 